1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinabab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither the Lord, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. For it is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Happy New Year. Glad you're here. Uh, on Monday night, uh, I had basketball practice with Nate, and Ben went with me, and we came home and settled in and, and turned on the TV. To watch a little bit of Monday Night Football, a great game between two AFC contenders. And when we turned it on, we saw something we didn't expect. Uh, Troy Aikman, the great Troy Aikman, and uh, Joe Buck were on camera, and and the game had been stopped. If you follow sports, you probably know about this story. Uh, And a quick Google search helped me find out what had happened. A 24-year-old strong safety for the Bills, a guy named DeMar Hamlin, had made a routine tackle and gotten up. And then immediately collapsed on the field in what was later determined to be a cardiac arrest as a result of a blow to his chest. And uh, he had CPR administered to him on the field and almost died, would have died on the field had it not been for the Buffalo Bills medical staff 
acting so quickly. So thank God for those men and women. He had CPR administered again in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And as of today, is still in critical condition, but seems like he's going to make it. And uh, as we watched that, they ended up canceling the game, as some of you, of course, know. And uh, as we watched that, it just struck me. And it might have struck you if you followed that story this week, how much of our lives are just full of unknowns, right? How much of our lives uh, we forget that things can change for us in an instant. We never know. We never know what each day will bring. We are always much more vulnerable and much more out of control than we like to think. And it's events like that, boom, in stark relief that remind us of the reality we're all in. Tragic things have a way of doing that to us. And I think New Year's have a way of reminding us of that too. What does 2023 hold? Well, we really have no idea. If you look back on your individual 2022, it's certain, I know, for every one of us that many unexpected, unplanned things happened in our lives. We're not in control, guys. We're vulnerable. So what does that leave us? As people of faith, as people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I want it to bring us, to lead us to the faithfulness of God. When we don't know what the future holds, which is always, we can remember that God does. We are vulnerable, but God is not. And that's one of the great reasons to study these great stories from the history of God's people. David's life is full, as we will see, of ups and downs, of unexpected twists and turns. David, although he becomes a powerful man, is as vulnerable as all of us are. And that's one of many good reasons to study it. David's life is not an idealized life. As an aside, that's one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible does not present heroes to us other than Jesus. The characters we find on the Bible's pages are real humans. They're not idealized humans. And the reason for that is because the story is not really David's story, and it's not really your story, and it's not really my story. The story is God's story. God is the main character in David's life, and God's faithfulness is on display in the midst of his successes and in the midst of his many failures. I want to read you a quote from Eugene Peterson, who has a great book on David called uh, Leap Over a Wall. It's a bit of an extended quote, but like C.S. Lewis, you can read Eugene Peterson for a while and you guys hopefully won't get tired of it. So listen to what Eugene writes. The David story is a plunge into the earthiness of humanity. He's so emphatically human. We see David fighting, praying, loving, sinning. David Conditioned by the assumptions of his brutal Iron Age culture, David with his eight wives. How do you explain that one? I don't know yet, by the way. We'll figure it out. Uh, David angry. David devious. David generous. David dancing. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that God can't and doesn't use to work out his holiness and salvation in our lives. David isn't an ideal life, but an actual life. 
The David story, like most other Bible stories, presents us not with a polished ideal to which we aspire, but with a rough-edged actuality in which we see humanity being formed, the God-presence in the earth human conditions. The David story immerses us in a reality that embraces the entire range of humanness, stretching from the deep interior of our souls to the farthest reaches of our imaginations. No other biblical story has this range to it, showing the many dimensions of height, depth, breadth, and length of human experience as a person comes alive before God, aware of God. Responsive to God. My hope is that God will use this study, this portion of his word, as we look at David's life, to make us more alive to him. More aware of God. More responsive to God. As we see his faithfulness. So let's begin. I want to show you. Just three things as we look at three sections from these verses as we begin David's story. First, God sends Samuel down. God sends Samuel down. That's how chapter 16 opens. God directs Samuel to go down to Bethlehem. And uh, in order to get what is happening here and to grasp the pathos of the story, let me catch us up to speed on where we are in Israel's history David, just to help you think about this in a timeline, lived about a thousand years before Jesus. So 3,000-ish years ago. But even before David was born, important events had shaped David's life. God had made Israel a nation out of the family of Abraham, whom he had chosen out of the nations to be his own people. And God has delivered Abraham's children the nation of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, and he's given them the land that he had promised, the land of Canaan. And um, Israel, when this story picks up, occupies the land of Canaan, but for centuries at this point, there has been a constant vacuum of spiritual leadership. And rather than being set apart from the surrounding nations in holiness as a ministry to God, of God to the nations, Israel deeply desires to be like the nations around them. This was evident in the period of the judges, which is right before the book of 1 Samuel, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so because of spiritual darkness of the time, the nation of Israel began to believe that the answer for them was to have a king whose name is not Yahweh. Israel thinks, you know what our problem is? We aren't like the other nations who all have strong monarchs who dictate economic policy and who wage wars to expand their borders and so on and so on and so on. And so the Israelites ask Samuel, the prophet of God, who's the star of the first half of this book that bears his name. They say, Samuel, anoint a king for us. That's what we need. That's why we're in such a spiritually dark place. We don't have a king. And Samuel says, you do have a king. God is your king. Samuel goes to God and says, these dumb people want a king. And Samuel is told by God, let them have what they want. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting who? 
me, God says. They're rejecting me. And so God gives the people what they want and tells them, hey, this is probably not a good idea. The king's going to take your best horses. He's going to take your best weapons. He's going to take your best fields. He's going to tax you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All you Americans are like, that's right, he's going to. But the people don't listen. God gives them what they want. As an aside, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is for God to give us what we want. So Saul's made the first king of Israel. Saul is one you can read about in 1 Samuel 9. Here's how he is described. When he's introduced in the story, the author tells us Saul was a handsome young man. In fact, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than Saul. From the shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Saul's a strapping, handsome, young middle linebacker who is made king. And things start off fine for Saul. But very quickly, he makes some massive and, and tragic mistakes. He, he ignores God's word and he makes an unlawful sacrifice, which only priests are allowed to do. He makes some really foolish vows. And he disobeys God's instructions repeatedly without any remorse. And so in the chapter before this one, in chapter 15, God himself says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Because he's turned back from following me. He's not performed my commandments. And so in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel and the Lord are both grieving. They're grieving Saul's failures. And Samuel, because he cares so much for his people, because he cares so much for his God and for God's renown, is angry. And Samuel's upset. And Samuel's sad. He sees Israel returning to spiritually dark times, maybe never even having gotten out of spiritually dark times. And he longs, he longs for a light to come. He sees nothing but spiritual impoverishment. And that's where we pick up in chapter 16. It begins, as you noticed, as Julie read, with God on the move. Chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, Hey, Samuel, it's time to move on, God says. You can stop grieving now. The time for grieving is past. And then he tells Samuel, in fact, I've rejected Saul, justly, by the way. And God says, I'm now doing a new thing. God tells Samuel, listen, he tells Samuel, I am still at work. Look at those first few verses. Notice in there, all of the action, all of the movement in the narrative are at God's behest. He speaks to Samuel, doesn't he? He tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil. He tells Samuel, go down 11 miles south to this little town, Bethlehem, to meet the king that I have seen for myself there. He tells Samuel, I'm going to introduce you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He tells Samuel how to get around Saul's anger and suspicion in verse 2. God tells Samuel to invite Jesse to a sacrifice. And then he says, I'm going to tell you what to do next. God has a plan. God is up to something. God has another person for Samuel to anoint. We see in verse three and Samuel as a model of faithful obedience to us is afraid. Hey, Saul's going to kill me and is confused. Why am I going to Bethlehem? But he does what God tells him. God is moving. 
He's moving the chess pieces into place to introduce to Samuel and to us the king that he has chosen rather than the king the people have chosen. What a great lesson. What a great lesson for you and for me. As we look at just the first few verses of this chapter, God is always at work. Much like Samuel, and much like Samuel's age, we live in an age filled with spiritual darkness. We are in a spiritually impoverished time. And much like Samuel, there are all kinds of things that grieve us, are there not? And rightly so. Maybe that's where you're at today as we begin this new year. Maybe 2022 was a hard year for you. Lots of grief. Lots of sadness. Lots of anguish. And right now, lots of uncertainty as to your future. Lots of fear. Lots of confusion. Lots of doubt. So often in our lives, we ask, where is God? What is God doing? Let this part of the Bible fill you with hopeful faith. When Samuel asked those questions, he was reminded, God never stops working. God never stops working. He will accomplish his good and gracious purposes for us, even using the uncertainty, the fear, the grief, and the failures to do it. God sends Samuel down. Secondly, God summons David in. Samuel invites Jesse and Jesse's sons, this family from the nowhere town of Bethlehem, to join him for a sacrifice. And they've got to be wondering what's going on. When a prophet shows up in a town like Bethlehem, that almost always is bad news, especially when it's a prophet who's just had this public falling out with the king. And they're thinking, if we align ourselves with Samuel, we're going to tick Saul off. If we tell Samuel, get out of here, we're going to tick Samuel off. But Samuel says, I come peaceably. And God is the one, as we've seen, who's in control here. He said to Samuel, one of the sons of Jesse is the king that I've chosen for myself. He's going to replace Saul. And this gets us to the heart of the story today. I love this part of the Bible. I love it. The drama, just on a purely literary level, this is genius. The drama builds. Did you notice David is not even named in the entire text until the very end? The drama builds throughout the narrative. First, the oldest son comes before the prophet. And like Saul, he's a good-looking young man, maybe the weak side linebacker when Saul was the middle linebacker. And uh, he seems to be kingly stock. It's not coincidental that Eliab could be described in the exact way that I described Saul reading chapter 9 a little bit earlier. Plus, Eliab is the firstborn. And of course, in any ancient culture, that was a highly significant thing. He is the heir. He is the one who will carry on his father's name. Samuel, well, Samuel's impressed. Verse 6, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. This is the guy. Man, he's impressive. Man, he's attractive. Beautiful. And the oldest. It makes total sense to me. Uh, Tom Brady. I know I'm on football today. Sorry. Tom Brady uh, 
great quarterback for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. There's this famous picture of him when he was entering into um, the pre-NFL draft workout where all the scouts come and get your measurables and all that stuff. It's called the Combine. And uh, one of the things they do in the NFL Combine is they have you basically strip down to your underwear and they take a picture of you. Sounds fun, right? And uh, there's, this, there's this picture of Tom Brady at the Combine. And uh, there's this funny meme where Tom Brady, who really, to be honest, looks like a pretty normal dude in this picture. And the meme has him next to another NFL player in his picture at the Combine, whose name is DK Metcalf, who's a receiver for the Seattle Seahawks and is basically a black Thor. I mean, he's massive, jacked, humongous. And if you look at these two guys' combine pictures next to each other and ask the question, which one of these two is going to be the greatest NFL player of all time? Zero percent of us are going to pick Tom Brady. A hundred percent, based on external appearance, are going with DK Metcalf. None of us would pick Brady based on externals, just like none of us would have picked anyone but Eliab based on externals. But God's vision is different. Look at verse 7. Do not look, Samuel, on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There's your theme verse. By the way, I think it's the theme of the entire book of 1 Samuel. Seeing. Seeing is key to this entire story. That word seeing is used nine times in just these verses. God's sight. God's vision is different than our sight. Than our vision. Yahweh sees not as man sees. Where does the difference lie? The scriptures tell us God looks on the heart. We look on outward appearance. We are all drawn to noticeable, external impressiveness. And God doesn't care about that. He cares about our inner lives. He cares about our hearts. So much of our lives is based on the economy of this world that this text illustrates so vividly. So much of our lives is based on the economy of appearance, the economy of stature, our evaluations of things, our desires, our goals, our hopes, our dreams are so often based on being like Eliab, based on being like Saul. We use the world's economy when we think about who we want to be. When we think about who we want to imitate, do you ever wish you were different than you are? Of course you do. Of course I do. We all wish that we were more attractive, that we were more successful, that we were wealthier. Maybe you wish you were from a better family. Maybe you wish you were the pastor of a larger, more famous church. There's a famous 90s, it's not that famous, I'm probably the only one who knows it. There was this 90s rap song by one hit wonder, this guy named Skilo. The song's called I Wish. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. Thank you for singing it, Daniel. <laughs> Every movie is about this. Every Disney movie ever made is about this. Let's just pick one illustration. Let me think. Aladdin, one of my favorites. What is Aladdin? He wants. 
wants a different life. He wants to be someone else, someone more impressive, someone that will get the girl. Don't we, didn't you watch that movie and think, man, what would I do with that genie? More wishes. That's what, it, no, he cancels that one. Can't have more wishes. it. We all want a genie that will give us wishes so that we can be more externally impressive. And we evaluate others based on the exact same things, outward appearance, Every single one of us do this all the time without even thinking about it. That's why things like Instagram exist. It's because that's the economy of our world. God does not see as we see. And that is both good news and bad news. It's good news because it means you don't have to fake it with God. Man, that's good news. You don't have to fake it with God. You don't have to pretend. In fact, you cannot. He is a God who knows the real you. And listen, listen, listen. He loves you. He loves you. There is a holy freedom in knowing and being known by God. But it's bad news. Because God sees right through all of our pretense. He sees right through all of our facades, all of our external impressiveness, and he cannot be fooled. He sees differently than we see with sovereign spiritual x-ray vision directly cutting into the core of every single one of us. When God looks into your hearts, and he does, what does he see? When God looks into your heart, what does he see? Of course, he doesn't see sinlessness. That's not really the idea here. He didn't see sinlessness in David either, as we'll soon find out. The question is, does God see a willingness to be contrite and open before him? Or a stubborn effort at continued pretension and diversion? Does God see a willingness in your heart to live quorum Deo, as Brian prayed, before God's face? Or does he see a resistance, a pretension, a desire to put on a mask? God wants your heart. God wants the real you. He is not impressed with all of your external victories and successes. He wants your heart near him. He wants you to live life before him. It's really the only way to live fully, to live wholly as his people. Don't live your life devoted to an appearance. Don't live your life Devoted to an appearance. Samuel, he's fooled by Eliab's appearance, much like we would have been most likely. But God says, nope, not the guy. And then we get son two of Benadab. Not the guy. Next. It's like Simon Simon Cowell. Out. Then we get son three, Shama. Next. Son four, son five, son six, so on, so on, so on. None are the one that Yahweh has chosen. And the drama escalates. And Samuel says, why did I come all the way down here? 11 miles is a long way when you have to walk and when you're an old man prophet. Are all your sons here or not? 
And uh, Jesse says, well, there's the smallest, the runt of the litter. But he's keeping the sheep. Go get him. I said, bring all your sons, says Samuel. He probably wasn't that mad, but he could have been. Could have been. Uh, David still hasn't even been named, interestingly enough. Jesse doesn't think it's even worth David showing up to the meeting. He's too young. He's too small. His work is too obscure. It's too monotonous. He's out in the field watching the sheep. You can almost see the brothers roll their eyes as Samuel says this. Because Samuel says, you got to stand here and we're not eating a thing until David shows up. And the guys are like, oh, give me a break. He's way out there in the field. But God's vision is different. Listen to what Peter Lightheart says in his commentary. Quote, God has chosen the small things of this world to confound the large. David, too, looked like a king, handsome and with beautiful eyes. But what made him the Lord's choice for king was not his external beauty, but his heart. Yahweh's choice was not based on what men could see of David, but upon his view as David's heart. What a lesson this is. Think about this. When David is being ignored in his early years by everyone else in his life in anonymity, in obscurity. Who is watching David? God. God is watching him. God uses obscurity. God uses solitude. God uses monotony to shape and to form you as his disciples. Don't ever think that God cannot use you because your life feels monotonous, you young stay-at-home moms. You men that go and do the same thing every day and it gets boring and you wish you could do something else. But if you got something else, it also would get boring. Don't ever think that God can't use you because you're obscure and no one writes articles about you and you don't have any Instagram followers, which, by the way, is a very, very good thing. Don't ever think that God can't use you because you don't believe you're of high value. God can make anyone a trophy of his grace. In fact, that's what he loves to do, and he has a long record of doing it. Don't dial out of God's mission and vision for your life because you don't think he will be impressed with what you bring to the table. Of course he's not. The less impressive you are, the more interested God is. Third, God sends his spirit upon. I love, I love verse 12. This is a The Bible does this all the time. Hilarious little bit of irony. We've just learned and spent all this time on how God doesn't care about external appearance, right? God doesn't care about how people look. But the first thing that Samuel says about David is, whoo, he is good looking. Look at that. Verse 12. He was ruddy. Ruddy. I mean, I guess that's good. That's a good thing. Ruddy. Strong. He had beautiful eyes and was handsome. David's just, frankly, he's irresistible. He's going to be, he is, he's going to be irresistible to everyone. This is ironic, also a little bit humorous. Samuel finds him compelling, even as a teenager, which he is here. He's probably about 17. God tells Samuel, arise, anoint him. This is the one. And in verse 16, we finally hear his name for the first time. Listen to how it's said. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Interestingly enough, again, with great literary style, that's contrasted with what you read in the very next verse about the Spirit of God leaving Saul. The transition from one king to the next happens right here and right now in God's mind. Although this is a private anointing, 
that no one other than those present are aware of at the moment. From now on, the narrative is going to drive towards David's eventual rule. David is a man under an irreversible mission on his way to triumph in the Lord, and he goes with the help of God's Spirit. That word rush is a strong word. It's like the Spirit tackles him. The Spirit overcomes him. Because God has set his affection and God has set his presence on this obscure, unknown teenage shepherd boy slash musician in a special way. He's called him out into preparation for kingship. But for David, as we'll see beginning next week, when the spirit arrives, the trouble begins. It's often the way in our lives that it goes. When the Spirit arrives, He leads you not into paradise, but into the wilderness. And we see here at the end of the text, as we wrap up, just a hint, just a whisper, that David's entire life and David's entire story, his whole trajectory to the kingship, is really telling us about and pointing us to a greater story, the great story. The story about David's son. A thousand years later, another young nobody appears in the hills of Bethlehem. He too is from an unlikely town and an unlikely family. There was nothing significant about him. He too operates in obscurity and anonymity for 30 years. He too is anointed by the Spirit. He too will rise. To be a great king. But unlike David, he would not fall. And he would not falter. You see, the message of the life of David is not to look to David. But to the one that David points to. Our king, Jesus Christ. Like David, Jesus appeared in a time of spiritual darkness and hopelessness and unrest. But unlike David, Jesus is the final answer to all of our hurts and all of our sins. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's faithfulness in David's life draws us to see God's great faithfulness in Jesus's life, wherein he pays for with finality all of our unfaithfulness, in which he once and for all fulfills all his promises to us and for us, canceling the power of sin and death and hell forever. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray.